Abigail Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment. I'm Tess. And I'm John. And it's the end of the month. Which means it's time for Da Bomb, our best of microbiology segment. In this segment, we discuss five recent papers or articles that we found really interesting in the world of microbiology. And this Da Bomb is extra special because this is our first collaboration with Microbytes, the blog that breaks down the microbiology world one bite at a time. They take huge complex papers and cook them down into something easily digestible. Which makes it perfect for our Da Bomb segment. If you'd like to find out more from them, you can find them at microbytes.org or at underscore microbytes on social media. We will point out which articles came from microbytes and add the link in our show notes so that you can read more if you are interested. Okay, so first off is extremophiles and space probes. <laughs> okay. So this article is called Newly Discovered Bacteria on Space Station Could Help Astronauts Grow Plants on Mars by Chelsea Goal. So it's sort of like, um, what was that movie with that guy, Matt Damon? Was it Matt Damon and the poop? Oh, yeah. The movie's eluding me, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. Is it called like just like Martian or something? It's called Martian? Yeah, it sounds about right. Okay, yeah. So they're basically doing the Martian thing. So in this article... They found three new bacterial strains that were discovered on the International Space Station. And they believe that these new bacterial strains could help grow plants in space. As we venture further into space, it will become necessary for astronauts to grow their own food. And besides, who wants to live only on processed packaged food? Have you ever tried those things? I mean, like, space ice cream's okay once in a while, but... I mean, the only thing I did try was space ice cream because I was a kid and come on, a kid can't say not ice cream, but I vaguely remember like the consistency of styrofoam. Yeah, it's not great. So definitely a downside to being an astronaut is the food. But if we can start growing food for them or they can start growing their old food up there, they'll be able to survive longer and go farther distances and not have to eat disgusting food. Bacteria are necessary for plant development as they are involved with important processes like nitrogen fixation, as we talked about in our last podcast, as well as phosphate solubilization and abiotic stress tolerance, which includes stuff like drought or heat, as well as biotic stress tolerance, which would be other pathogens or insect so in the end, bacteria help to promote the growth and protect against disease. Plants require bacteria. They mostly get it from the soil that they're grown in, which makes it challenging when you're in space. But scientists were doubtful that they would be able to create the soil-plant interaction in space. But finding microbes that we can inoculate into the plants to help grow could be a solution for this. The International Space Station, or the ISS, is kept as clean as possible, mostly for the health and safety of the astronauts on board. If they get sick or if something happens to them, they are completely on their own. And so it's really, really important to do everything that they can on the ground to make sure that the mission is a success. But like everything, nothing is completely sterile except for the germ-free mice, which that took years to develop and we won't go into that. Nothing is sterile or void of microbes, and nor do we want it to be because, as we mentioned so many times on this podcast, microbes do some amazing things for us. We ourselves are microbe havens. An average person carries over 100 trillion microscopic organisms 
in and on their bodies. The team of this research study found a total of four strains that belong to the Methylobacteriaceae family, which are often involved in plant processes. Three of the strains were previously undiscovered, which is like my dream to discover an undiscovered microbe and then like get the honor to name it. That would be like career goal. What would you name your microbe? I don't know because I don't actually think this dream will ever come true, but this is my Disney dream. The one that like you wish would come true, but no, it never will. Naming a microbe, dreaming big. <laughs> Anyways, what would you name your microbe? Mm, I don't have a specific name, but I, I'm pretty sure I would be like a sci-fi reference if I were to do it. There's so many microbes that are named after sci-fi, like there's one with um, named after Yoda and Chewy. I think Picard has a few, of course. So there's definitely a lot of microbiology nerds out there. And we love you if you're listening. You're our peeps. I'm just saying that the sci-fi genre can't be too saturated with microbes being named after it. There, I mean, there's so many sci-fi genres out there and characters out there that not as much as microbes, but enough, I think, to satisfy all the microbe nerds who want to name a microbe after a fictional character. So back to the study at hand, the genetic analysis of these undiscovered microbes was done and the strains show they are closely related to methylobacterium indicum which was isolated from rice seeds. The team is proposing to name the crop of novel species Methylbacterium ajamali after the renowned Indian biodiversity scientist Ajma Khan. I'm actually surprised that these are novel soil microbes that were found not in soil. Well, I mean, they don't really know where the origin of these come from. They found them on the International Space Station. Where they originated from is who knows they could have mutated to become a, a different species as we know that there's a lot more selective pressure out there in space right or maybe it's just soil so saturated that they you know it's hidden when it, you do a whole genome sequence and it took going into outer space for them to actually find it oh for sure there's so much untapped potential in the microbiome of soils because yeah we just have not sequenced it in deep enough to really understand all of the organisms that are there. So we'll move right from space to food. That's right. We're going into food and agriculture microbiology. And this is one of the articles that was republished by Friends for Microbites. And the article's name is The Diversity and Function of Sourdough Starter Microbiomes. And this was originally published by Landis and colleagues and eLife. And so what they did is they took 500 sourdough samples from all over the world and they analyzed them for their microbial composition. Most samples came from the US, but others came from Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Thailand. So as people may know, sourdough is made with only two ingredients, flour and wheat. Easy, right? Just lay it out and let some yeast and lactobacilli get in there and start fermenting and farting, resulting in the dough rising. Overall, the authors found seven different bacteria and 35 different yeasts. 35? Yeah. Wow, that's some diversity in there. I mean, if you think about it, what what are you supposed to do with sourdough? You just like leave it on the shelf and then just the environment, like the yeast from the environment just settle on it. So yeah, I mean, there are different ways to make sourdough for sure. Yeah. So previous studies were conducted on starters from Europe and they focused primarily on the most abundant species. But here the authors tried to look at the full diversity 
And to understand where the variability between samples come from, they looked at their geographic differences, age, storage location, like the fridge versus room temperature, the home characteristics, and so many other variables. I think that's the thing with a lot of the fermentation microbiomes, like when you're talking kombucha or sourdough or anything that has just like they're almost like family recipes to an extent. It's so hard to really understand how they're beneficial because there's so many different ways that they're made. And so they accumulate so many different kinds of microbes. You get the microbes of the home and the geographical location and the baker, the person who's making it, which I think adds a lot of your own personality into these fermented foods. Exactly. It's, it's like your own little personal uh, community that each place makes. Yeah. And yeah, the parameters are just endless on ways that the microbiome of fermented foods can change. Exactly. So out of the 33 parameters, I mean, that's a lot of parameters that they looked at and I give them kudos for that because. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I don't know how you would do stats on that. Yeah. Oh. Only 10. <laughs> I, I do not want to do that. Yep. But only 10% explained the variation between community compositions. They did find associations between species and parameters. For example, old starters often contained F San Franciscans, which is named after being discovered in sourdough in San Francisco. Oh, I was just going to ask that <laughs> right on the nose with that one. I would definitely not name a microbe after a place. No. Yeah. Nope. A person maybe, but a place, I don't know. I don't think so. Well, they finally found that microbial composition influence dough rise and aroma profiles and that low abundance species were given different chemical signatures to the sourdough. These species are often overlooked in previous studies, but there are always more to learn about these sourdough. We don't know how it evolves or the mechanisms for the community assembly either. So I thought that was a pretty cool article. Yeah, you know, that one sounds really familiar to me, and I don't know if we've done it in the past or if we did a different sourdough one. I feel like we touch upon sourdough quite a lot. Not as much as cholera, but quite a lot. Well, right now we're going to transition from food to pathogen profiles and microbiology. Yeah, and we're not going to talk about cholera. I don't believe you. Let's hear it though. All right. So this is an article. It was a review article, which I highly suggest people to go read. It is in a scientific journal, but I found that the way that the authors wrote this, it was very easy and understandable for people. So if you'd like to go find this article, it's called Learning from Mistakes, The Role of Phages in Pandemics by Halam Al-Asadi and colleagues. So hopefully it doesn't come as a surprise to anyone that there are multi-drug resistance bacteria out there. They have come about because of the misuse and overuse of antibiotics. Over the course of the last 50 years, well, actually I guess it's more like 70 years, our dependency on antibiotics has created a more resilient population of bacteria. It is becoming increasingly necessary to find new ways to combat disease. And one of these ways just might be bacteriophages, which are viruses to bacteria. This is sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of thing in the world of medical microbiology. So I just want to like emphasize that antibiotics are not the villain here. They have been extremely useful and have changed the world in ways we can't even fathom because they save lives every day that go on to do extraordinary things. 
But we also can't forget that antibiotics are a natural weapon of the microbial world. And thus microbes are equipped to adapt and create new weapons against these antibiotics. The more they use the antibiotics, the better they can equip themselves against it. We are flooding our farms with antibiotics and throwing pills at patients like they're placebos. They are a cheap, quick fix that creates a long-term global health crisis. It's estimated that antimicrobial resistant strains kill 7 million people each year. And by 2050, the WHO, the World Health Organization, estimates that deaths from multi-drug resistant bacteria will exceed that of cancer, being responsible for 10 million deaths every single year. Yeah. And not to mention, it's really hard nowadays to find a new antibiotic. So it's not like we can just swap out one antibiotic for a new one. There's a lot of research and it's really time consuming too. Yeah. I don't have the exact quote or number here, but the amount of discovering new antibiotics is going way down and the price it costs to actually get an antibiotic through FDA approval and everything is like millions and millions of dollars. It's not very economically, it's not feasible at this point, And it's really time to transition into new tactics so we can try to stay ahead. So why then phages? If nothing else, it's another weapon to fight against infection. It's another tool in our toolkit to keep ahead of the bacteria and fungal and other viruses. So bacteriophages can be highly specific. They have these interactions against certain bacteria, meaning they are targeted therapies. Safe for humans, they don't attack human cells. They'll have a very specific target within the body, able to locate and zone in, sniper in to a specific bacteria that we may not want. And they don't cause a huge dysbiosis because of this. When we use antibiotics, it basically just kills everything. Well, not everything, but it kills a lot. And that's why sometimes you'll get diarrhea, you get upset stomach, or you feel kind of poopy when you take antibiotics because it just is destroying all of your good bacteria at the expense of taking out the bad bacteria. But phages, these can be targeted. They have a specific target in mind. They're not just going to wipe out the whole forest. They're just going to find that one demon in your gut. So when bacteria find a way to combat against the phage, like we've said before, they are able to mutate and equip against these new weapons. The phage is living. It will also find a new way to combat the bacteria. And so you have this living arms race as opposed to antibiotics, which is dead versus a living, mutating, adapting microbial population. As technologies improve, so will phage therapy. A phage's genome is actually quite small, much smaller than ours, way smaller than a bacteria. And because of this, they're less complex, but they're also sometimes harder to find. But because we have these increasing technologies that are getting cheaper to sequence large amount of data, it's getting easier to characterize phages' genomes and to engineer them to have more desirable traits like improving storage conditions, improving efficacy, or establishing a more niche host range. So where is phage therapy today? As of December 2020, there were 46 clinical trials. So these are trials on humans that included the term phage in them with only one in phase two. So if you're not aware, there are usually is there three or four different clinical trial phases. Three phases. Three phases. 
So the first one is usually a very, very small amount of people. Phase two is when they ramp it up and doing in a couple hundred of people. And phase three is kind of like what we were hearing about last summer with the COVID vaccine, when there are thousands of people that they were testing the vaccine on. So this is phase two, so it's midsize. Um, and actually like a huge percentage of biomedical, biopharmatical, biopharmatical, <laughs> pharmaceutical clinical trials end at phase one. They never get past phase one. Many of them more don't even get into clinical trials. So this is a pretty big deal that they're getting to this phase two trials. So this one phage therapy that's in phase two trials right now is testing if a phage cocktail, so a slurry of different phages, are able to combat against UTIs or urinary tract infections. So it'll be interesting to see if it goes to phase three and then gets approval in certain countries to be used. So we're really at the very infancy of phage therapy research. During the last two decades, more than 25 reports of compassionate use of phage therapy after antibiotic failure have been published. So what compassionate use means is it's sort of these cases that they've tried everything that they're able to try and the individual's not responding. This is sort of like a last ditch effort to cure them of whatever ailment ails them. Yeah, so it's this kind of last ditch effort to cure the patient. So this is sort of where we can start with this research. Um, the FDA has approved phage therapy as a compassionate treatment for COVID-19 patients in the US. And this is mainly due because there's a high incidence of multi-drug resistant secondary infections, which is a huge contributor to the amount of lives we've lost during this pandemic because of the SARS-CoV-2 amount of virus. One of the biggest barriers that phage researchers face is regulation and funding, which I think is the biggest barriers that all research face, <laughs> regulations and funding. But this is even more so with phage therapy because the principles are there, the theory is there, but they don't really have um, a true success story that society can latch on to at this point. There are a lot of anecdotal moments where they're showing phage as really influential in changing the, the bacteria or killing off the bacteria, but there hasn't really been that case in humans um, that they can say like, yes, this is working. So I think it's a really promising solution for multi-drug resistant problem. I think it's something that we're going to hear a lot about in the next few decades. But as of right now, it's, it's really at the infancy, which is a really exciting time to kind of get involved and get started. So when I first heard about uh, phage therapy, I was wary about it until, you know, reading more how hyper-specific it is to bacteria. And if it really kicks off, it, I think it might be better than antibiotics because antibiotics, even though say you're going after gram negative bacteria, you're still hitting a wide range of microbes. This way you can be a lot more specific and you're not damaging the rest of the microbiome by doing so. Right. And we're getting really good at genetically engineering or genetically modifying organisms. And so if we can find those genes and, and figure out how to make it target a specific bacteria, I mean, that could be revolutionary. That could be the next antibiotic solution. So we'll move away from phage therapy and talk about some other microbial products that we found. Yeah, like in the news that biotech 
And this is an article I read called Microbe Discovered in Evolutionary Stasis for Millions of Years. Now, I have to admit right off the bat that this was a little stretch for biotech, but I wrap it up in the end. But either way, I found it pretty cool. So in 2008, a bacteria called, and I am going to try really good with uh, this, Candatus desulfuridus. Candatus desulfuridus adexavirator. Yeah, what Tess said. Well, wait, wait, let me try it again. Candidatus, 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 Desulfurotus, Adiaxivator. Yeah. I don't know what it says that I'm a microbiologist, but I have a terrible time pronouncing microbes' names. Well, this one is just hard. Yeah. They named this in the sole purpose that no one ever would be able to pronounce it correctly. Rude. They should have named it after a sci-fi character. (laughs) They should have made it a lot easier. So this bacteria was discovered in a gold mine in South Africa, and it feeds off of chemical reactions that are triggered by radiation. I think it was like two miles down that they discovered it. And because of the microbes' isolation... Scientists want to study its evolution by comparing samples of this microbe from different areas of the world, deep underground. And these were areas that were different chemically from each other. And how did these conditions drive the microbe's evolution? Surprisingly, though, that they found that these strains were almost identical to each other down to the molecular level. And how similar they were it means that they did not really change much in the past 175 million years. That means they really haven't changed when the supercontinent Pangaea was still around. Wait, is that before the dinosaurs? I mean, it was during the time of the dinosaurs, I think. Wow, cool. I mean, this is early dinosaur era. And so... Wait. So they've been the same since through the dinosaurs and all through all the ice ages. They never changed. Not really. I think there's like small changes, but it's not enough to really call it a strain. Like they're like still pretty much the same. Wow. So the scientists believe that the lack of evolutionary change is due to its ability to protect against mutations, which has in, in sense stopped its evolution. Yeah, they think this is due to its enzymes that make copies of DNA, which is called DNA polymerase. This is found in all living things, DNA polymerase. And it's an enzyme that's usually good at making an exact copy, but it will make a mistake every once in a while. And this is, you know, some are better than others at preventing mutations. But this bacteria's version seems to be very good at it, and it prevents errors from occurring. Wow, we need to isolate that and put that in in our sequencing, replace that with our tack. And that's where it circles back to biotech, because this is a very desired trait. And like you said, for sequencing. Oh, I nailed it, huh? I stole stole your ending, stole your mojo here. Yeah. And it can also, you know, it's also important like gene therapy too, because we have good polymerases out there, but they still can cause an error every once in a while. And the less errors, obviously, the better. So if we can isolate it, it substantially improves the biotech industry and research as a whole. Oh, for sure. Did they say if it was heat stable? Because that's one of the reasons why we use TAC polymerase is because it's heat stable. They did not mention heat stable stability. So this is very early on in this discovery. Yeah. Interesting. That's really exciting. Yeah, I thought so. And I thought like the biggest thing was like 
how could something not change over such a long period of time? I mean, that just blew my mind, like 100% mind blown. Yeah. So, I mean, this is obviously still like their leading theory, but I think there's good evidence for it. Yeah, we'll have to follow up on that one for sure. Yeah, and they said that it could even change how we view some microbes' evolution, period. So what do you have for us for environmental marine microbiology? Well, this is another article that comes to us from our friends over at Microbytes on Mimi virus. So the original publication is called The Co-Evolutionary and Phylogenetic Analysis, a Mimi Viral Replication Machinery Suggests the Cellular Origin of Mimi Viruses by Supriya Patil and Karyan Katabagal. Sorry if I pronounced your names wrong. They're very pretty names. So what are Mimi viruses? So Mimi viruses are part of the largest known viruses. Uh, Remember when I was telling you bacteriophages are very, very small? These particular viruses are huge. In fact, they're two to 40 times bigger than other viruses. Wow, that's... I think that's getting close to being the size of like uh, bacteria. Yeah. I mean, if I was two times bigger, I could play basketball. <laughs> if I was 40 times bigger, I think I'd be taller than the Empire State Building. <laughs> okay. I definitely would not be taller than the Empire State Building, but I'd be bigger than my house. Yeah. That one, <laughs> that one I think is true. For okay. sure. So my hyperboles aside, <laughs> uh, they are so big They are found, I feel like that's a, your mama's so fat joke. (laughs) These viruses are so big. How big are they? (laughs) They were found to be infected by smaller viruses called Sputnik virophages. That's a real knee slapper, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So Mimi viruses, when discovered, were thought to be bacteria because obviously they're ginormous and therefore were called mimi viruses from mimicking microbes the origin of giant viruses are still not well known however several hypotheses have been proposed to test which hypothesis was the most likely patel and conabagel 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 looked at the complexity of the evolution of the mimi virus dna replication machinery To do this, they compared the machinery between different organisms. Another virus, bacteriophages, which we talked about before, specifically T4, which is kind of like the poster child or the E. coli of bacteriophages, to bacteria, which of course I used E. coli because that's the E. coli of E. coli, and archaea, eukaryotes, and of course the mimivirus. As each of these organisms have different levels of complexity, the authors could compare the machinery between the different organisms and show that out of the nine replication machinery proteins investigated, five are eukaryotic origin, two are bacterial, one of phage origin, and one protein with unknown origin. Based on these results, they propose that Mimi viruses might have evolved from complex cellular ancestor that over time lost genes by reductive evolution. However, from which ancestor these giant viruses originate is still not understood, and more studies on giant viruses will be needed to fill in this gap of knowledge. Hmm. I wonder what microbes they infect. Well, it seems like viruses are infecting them, so they're... Involved in a whole bunch of interactions. So viruses are infecting them. They must infect something else or else they wouldn't be a virus. 
That's true. It's kind of one of those fundamental things on what is a virus. Yeah, but it seems like it's like a hybrid between a virus and a cell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Well, Microbial Nation, that's the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you keep listening. What did you find to be the most mind-blowing piece of news? That piece of news that just kind of blew your mind right out of your head, and then you had to sweep it up and stuff it back through your ear holes? What was that piece of news? Did we say it? Did we miss anything? Was there something else this month that you decided was way more interesting than things we said? We want to know. You can let us know by sending us email at microbials at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram or other social platforms at Microbials. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe or follow us on whatever podcast app you use. If you love today's show, and who didn't, please share it with a friend. We love sharing micro moments with you, and you can help us share micro moments with the world, one friend at a time. All right, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye.